Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Asun, Demaya, and Cyanite from the fifth season. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, Charlie Keeks. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Very glad to have you on. This is a really interesting text. I had not um, read it yet. For anyone who's unfamiliar, uh, the, the fifth season is, is the first of the Broken Earth uh, trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. And it is a, uh, I'd say fantasy. I'd heard it described as a sci-fi, but I, I definitely think it's more more fantasy uh, in terms of what, what we get from there. They're both, I mean, those those genres are often grouped together at the bookstore. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it tells the story of a planet uh, that has, uh, you know, a class of people who are born with uh, specific powers and a catastrophe is striking the planet. And we kind of track some storylines as to as how people uh, will both live in and react to uh, the changing world around them uh charlie had you heard of this book before uh you had reached out saying you wanted to be on the guest uh, a guest soon and i said well i've got this book i'm trying to get into the rotation i don't have a guest yet and you immediately said you'd, you'd read it but had you heard of this book before then i can't say that i had i had heard of mm-hmm. the author not this work yeah, uh, N.K. Jemisin is, I think, becoming more and more um, a, a well-known and important voice uh, in in fantasy, uh, and um, uh, this book is w- within that world very well known and respected, uh, and and the whole trilogy. We'll get into some of the trivia about it, um, and I think we're going to be seeing more of her because, uh, well, I mean, I have it in the trivia, but. Uh, the, the trilogy was optioned for a, a film series and Jemison's writing the screenplay. Yeah, and, that's right. I think uh, it's going to be one of these, um, yeah, limited series. Uh, do you remember who it was with HBO, Netflix, or has that been announced? I think it was Sony and it was going to be through their TriStar banner. So I think it's for oh, okay. film uh, that they're, they're, wow. they're not, not a mini series. Well, uh, we um, need, at least that um, was the impression I had from the article I read. I reserve the right to be wrong, uh, which uh, often does come into play. <laughs> and, interesting. Ta- talking about, yeah, what elements you think will be cinematic and how they'll adapt. I'm open to talk about that, too. Uh, very nice. Yeah, because um, I'm sure some of it is just the era we live in. Like I when I heard it was being optioned, I immediately assumed, you know, prestige miniseries. Uh, <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> a streamer or, or HBO, you know, <laughs> where they can break it, break it apart. Yes, um, I think I saw the announcement for... before. Um, I, I saw the announcement before I'd read the book. Uh, and I, I think I can see how this book can be contained uh, to uh to a single film um some fantasy books become so sprawling it's kind of like how how could you try and condense that into three hours um mm, and, and yeah, so I, I think there's enough of a focus here that and i haven't read the next parts of the trilogy uh that i could see how this could become a trilogy of films rather than you know uh you know a series of mini series yeah it'll be interesting to see what um they do of course with the um linearity or lack thereof in the storytelling <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it does bounce around uh, a little bit. So why don't we just run through some of this trivia uh, that we have. The fifth season, as I noted, is part of the Broken Earth trilogy. And this book was first published in 2015. And the sequels, The Obelisk Gate and The Stone Sky, were published in 2016 and 17. Uh, so 15, 16, 17, just back to back to back. I love it when trilogies are able to come through uh, that quickly. Um, yes, my, definitely. My favorite fantasy series uh, has had two parts of a trilogy out for about a decade now, and I'm just waiting for that. Final is it the chapter. name of the wind? It sure is. Uh, <laughs> yes, I agree with you. It needs to, like I said, that might be the distance before we start recording, I had mentioned I used to read a little bit more in the fantasy genre, but like you, I've just been waiting for him to drop his next volume. So yes, props to Jemison for actually completing the thing. Yeah, and uh, I've I've not read, but I know uh, similarly George R. R. Martin is leaving the fans of Game of Thrones uh, <laughs> hanging for, is it the seventh book? I can't remember what book they're on, but I just know fans are desperate for him to, to publish I, it. I think at this point, uh, you know, hell will freeze over before that happens. <laughs> yeah. He's just living off his his HBO residuals, in my opinion. But yes, he, he will come back when we're talking about the, the how this works lives in the real world so mm-hmm. yes put a pin in that <laughs> yeah. um so well i guess this may be it so all three books won the hugo award for best novel and so three years in a row nk jemison uh her, her novels were selected and it is the first time an author ever won three consecutive awards for best novel and i think also the first time that all books in like a, a series won uh, the, the oh, Hugo wow. Award for, for Best Novel. I, I think I saw that listed and I tried to track down where I had read that and I couldn't see it. But I know it was the first time the same author won three consecutive. And can we define the Hugo for people that might not know? So the Hugo Award is one of the most prominent awards uh, for science fiction and fantasy. And it yeah. is given by the World Science Fiction um or Is it organization? I know it's at a convention is where you get, to, like if you go to their mm-hmm. convention, you become a voter. Yes, um, yes. You have to um, like kind of try to get votes the way that they do for like Emmys or Oscars is how I would describe it. But for the book world, yeah, it's uh, the buzz and the critical acclaim combined, I would say. Yes. So so anyone who goes to the World Science Fiction Convention is, is that voter. And um, there's been... Uh, you know, let's just say some controversy uh, in the last <laughs> decade. Um, That's an understatement. Uh, about I, this process. I, think I very th- much enjoyed reading about this because it it really does say a lot about the changes of the world. of the pe- mm-hmm. Since I myself dipped in and out of this genre, the world changed a lot. And so did the um, the powers that be and people trying to break through with new voices. Yeah, so the the Hugo Awards are named after Hugo Gernsback, who is, if if you ever read anything about the science fiction genre, you will come across him. He was um, the founder of Amazing Stories. And I think I I have this bit of trivia in my head that he wanted the genre to be called Scientifiction, so scientific and fiction as a portmanteau. Uh, what a but, portmanteau, man! I, yeah, <laughs> I think I think the new one is better. But <laughs> so I don't know, just being called science fiction, despite his, his efforts in in those early, like this is in the 1920s that he was oh, wow. uh, push, pushing for for that. And um, let me just double check. Let's see. I think I've got a link up here for yeah. 1926 is when. Uh, amazing story started so yeah this is in the 1920s that uh this is kind of becoming codified as a genre um obviously there are earlier texts that 
now people point to and say, well, this is pioneering, you know, going back mm-hmm. to Frankenstein, uh, you know, the, yes, this yes, is, that you know, came early up when versions I was... of science fiction. But this is where in the 1920s in kind of pulp fiction, you're really starting to see a lot of the uh, the generic elements getting codified as to what sci-fi is. And so the, the Hugo Awards are named after him and very much they've been traditionalist uh, for, for a very long time in terms yes. of what science fiction is, what uh, is representative of the best kind of science fiction. And within that controversy, uh, this was maybe like eight or nine years ago, uh, there was um, a movement to kind of say, you know what, science fiction <laughs> has become too obsessed with social issues. It's become too allegorical mm, yes. uh, w- with um, these ideas of racism or addressing sexism or or homophobia or, you know, whatever issue it may be that you can find through the allegory of science fiction and fantasy. Um, and so there, there was a uh, like a subset of voters within uh, the World Science Fiction Convention that came to, to be labeled the sad puppies. I don't know yes. what it is about these kinds of groups that they always get the worst. Like they self-identify they, they with, really with, do. Like with bad labels. The, they play themselves. It's a self-own. Like it just sounds so lame. They're like, I already was suspect of you. And thank you, gentlemen. Because so, it, it so, seems yeah. to me to be almost all, all, yeah, kind of traditionalists, as you say. Men who, as you say, are, um, mm, like regressive in terms of what they want this genre to be. And it was what a big writing campaign or something. It's been a while, but I remember this when it happened. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not too long after there was a similar, but different flavored movement in the video game industry that called came to be called gamers gate, which ah, yes, kind of gamers targeted gate. and chased out <laughs> women and voices of color from making yeah. video games for similar issues saying like video games shouldn't be causes of social justice. I just want to sit back and be entertained and not have to think about those things, which really, you know, for them means I, I just want to see protagonists that look exactly like me and uh, nothing that, causes me to question my my worldview as a yeah in the case of a lot of people who are in gamers gate and in the not a puppies. spoiler at this point to say that uh issues such as sexual violence are a major like plot point of say the game of thrones series so mm-hmm. you know, it's certainly taking a non-stance is still taking a stance in my view on uh this kind of debate i suppose <laughs> yeah and so what they they kind of did it, um with the, with the hugo awards where anyone who goes to the world science fiction convention can, can vote they actually like organized into voting blocks uh in order to uh i my, my my understanding is that there's like initial votes where you actually get the final names that are on the ballot and they tried to organize their votes in such a way that to kind of gerrymander the voting system so that mm. only uh works by authors who they viewed as aligning with their worldview and works that they didn't feel were challenging their worldview would be even be on the ballot. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in the end. Uh, and so that was, like I said, was um, eight or nine years ago that that kind of controversy came out and all sorts of voices in science fiction and fantasy of, of famous authors, you know, condemned that movement. Uh, yeah. You know, a few that were receiving more votes embraced it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but then this is only a few years after that we get that we get N.K. Jemison. Um, winning the the award three years in a row, which is huge because she's an African-American woman um, writing this series that does address issues of racism, issues of sexual violence and the trauma that that uh, entails, issues mm-hmm. of um, like, like not just you know telling a good story, which I think she does tell a good story, but really uh, embracing the idea of thematic heft to the story that, that, that she's telling in this fantasy world that we'll, we'll break down when we get to the plot summary. Uh, and so there was that moment of kind of like push and pull uh, within the Hugo Awards. And then it seems to have 
have swung. And, and I, um, I know, I, I think even before N.K. Jemisin as an um, African-American author won, uh, I can't remember, I think Three Body Problem won, which is a Chinese uh, science, science fiction novel. I love not only that work, which I think is really solid, but his translator, I highly recommend our listeners check out Ken Liu. His uh, original short stories, he acted as a translator for Three Body Palm, came strongly recommended to me. But when I picked up Ken Liu, I was like, this is what I want. And he does very much use his experiences as an Asian American where he's telling short stories. I would call it a little more literary, a little less genre itself in terms of his own writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's writing... uh, short stories that are clearly informed by his experiences as an Asian American, but I thought really transcended to be just one of the best collections. So I don't know if you do links in the show notes, or if you can link to um, the paper menagerie. Yes. So I agree that there's more of a visibility for Mm -hmm. authors of color and from different backgrounds. Yeah. So uh, way to go, N.K. Jemison, both for uh, breaking through that movement of sad puppies and you know <laughs> yes. being recognized for the work, but then also you know not just being recognized in the awards, but like landing the multi-million dollar deal for your <laughs> for your film oh, rights certainly. and also yeah. writing the the screenplay. Like you're, you're yeah, making it. She... Oh, and also last year she received a MacArthur Genius Grant. So oh wow, um, yeah, yeah, she's That's very um, impressive. Yeah, she she seems to be a very impressive person looking at all the accomplishments. And and this is not her first uh, novel nor her first series. Her first novel was published in 2010. I, and she's put out one nearly at a book per year while for much of that time before she quit to write full time, um, maintaining a therapy practice. She has a PhD in psychology. So, yes, very accomplished yeah. woman. <laughs> and also lots of short stories. Like I didn't count it, but it was dozens and dozens of short stories that she's published in the same time. And um, that Can we therapy- briefly touch on that? I really found this inspiring for us uh, 30-somethings. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the same boat. So she took this job. She was doing various um, school counselor-type jobs in areas she didn't really like. She had split her childhood between New York and the South and you know, had this kind of split consciousness that way, but ended up in the Northeast about my age, early 30s, and was just like, this is not fulfilling. So yeah, she didn't really get her start writing until she just sat down and had her first published story when she was like 32 or 33. So aspiring writers, it's not too late. You can (laughs) break through and she kind of did it almost as an experiment. I think her first uh, impression of sci-fi fantasy was like mine, like, eh, this is not for me. This is clearly not my world. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if that may contribute to why she has a really sharp gimlet outsider's eye on the thing she wasn't she said she loved reading comics and all those types of pop culture ephemera growing up but did not aspire to be it when growing up if that makes sense a distinction yeah um and uh, I, I think that experience that she had as a counselor and like her work in psychology mm-hmm. it made the way that she wrote about trauma for me feels it, it just felt oh, different than other yeah. times I've read versions of a broken character right you know someone who yeah. ha- is has been traumatized for as we, we'll we'll get to when i talk about the plot like very yes. <laughs> legitimate reasons that this person is so traumatized but also the way their reaction <clears throat> and, they, and the way they processed uh their trauma felt i, I didn't like just reading it, i'm just like this feels different <laughs> and then after i read the uh finished the book is when i you know started pulling in the trivia and i found out 
even more about Gemma said, I'm like, oh, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense as to why that I could just sense maybe more ver- veracity, um, less speculation as to what trauma is like um, in terms of how she was writing that. Yeah, agreed there. All right. Well, before we move on to that plot summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to the spoiler uh, summary of this novel. Now, there's two things that I've discovered across five years of doing this podcast. With <laughs> fantasy novels, it's sometimes best to just get the world building out of the way. I think Jemison does a really good job of letting the reader discover a lot of the facets of how this fantasy world is going to function, what the rules of magic are, etc. Um, as you're reading along and, and like it gets doled out at different points where you, where you learn things, but that doesn't always translate well when you're trying to just summarize the text. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as what the world is like, This book takes place on a world where every few centuries there is a fifth season, uh, which is a massive climate change that disrupts farming, food supplies, trade, etc. can be triggered by various events, but like it's so well known within the culture that uh, it's expected that a fifth season could come within your lifetime. People have communities called comms uh, that grow and thrive in between those fifth seasons, and not knowing when a fifth season will come or how long it will last, the comms have lore, uh, called stone lore, about how to survive these eras, including how to shut themselves off from from the outside world uh, and potential raiders that could be out there trying to come in and steal any supplies that they have but also within their stone lores, how to store their supplies and so on. Um, and these traditions, the stone lore kind of defines a lot of the society. And also within this world, there are a few different groups. So there are humans with no powers. Then there are groups um, called um, the Orogenies, uh, who basically have the superpower to control stone. And there's also like some temperature elements that come with this. Uh, and Orogenies are very feared and they get treated as monsters unless they've been taken by a guardian to be trained at a place called the Fulcrum. Fully trained Orogenies are still feared and they're still kind of treated by outcasts by the normal humans uh, or the humans with no powers, uh, but they're more tolerated in society because at least they have some control over their power. And then also just noting there are a group called Stone Eaters who are not humans at all and can move through rock and eat rocks and they're very different from humans or erogenies and it's just kind of like oh <laughs> there's this other group here oh and there's also giant obelisks that float in the sky and don't yeah that's more like it that felt more like a treat for a future uh <laughs> you know explanation of this world than something that really got fully explored in depth in this one and also one other thing i found when summarizing this book bounces between three plot lines one follows essen a woman who is secretly an erogeny who is looking for her surviving child after a catastrophic event has occurred there's Demea, a young girl who's being taken by a guardian to the fulcrum to be trained because she's demonstrated the powers of an orogeny. And there's also Sinite, a trained orogeny who has been assigned to complete a task. Um, and I'm going to disentangle those plots. So in the book, it's like chapter of or chapter two with one person, and then chapter two with the next, and then chapter two with the next. I'm just going to do Essence plot and then um, Demea's plot and then uh, Sinite's plot and... Um, I just find that's easier to follow for listeners. So Essen lives in a small calm and is secretly an orogeny. She has two children. They're very young. Uh, One day when she comes home, she finds that her son has been beaten to death. And this is the trauma that I was talking about. Uh, Part of her knows that her husband must have done this after her son displayed power. So the husband did not know that she was an orogeny. Uh, The son 
is an Arajani, uh, and he must have displayed powers. And because Arajani are so feared and hated, uh, it, it is it seems to be kind of standard practice, particularly if you're in smaller rural communities, that uh, that they would be killed, any children who demonstrate these powers. Uh, so part of her knows that her husband did this, but most of her shuts down to avoid processing the trauma. Slowly, she does process um, that her husband still has their daughter, and she must... She needs to go save her daughter because her daughter also has the powers of Narajani uh, and will likely be killed if she displays any of those in front of uh, her father. Um, a massive earthquake has marked the start of a fifth season. So the gates are locked. The comma is shutting down. Uh, when Essen tries to leave, she's recognized as an orogeny and attacked. Uh, and she instinctively uses her powers to kill her attackers and to escape the city. The roads outside the city are filled with refugees from comms that were destroyed in that earthquake. Most people avoid each other and fear turned to violence by desperate people. Uh, but she does take pity on uh, a boy named Hoa. Um, he's very pale and kind of strange, uh, but they begin traveling together. They also meet up with Tonki, a very eccentric woman who appears to have been homeless for a very long time, but is also highly educated. Uh, just like on the one hand, she wants to dismiss her as just, um, uh, you know, an eccentric homeless person, but then also like she clearly is very knowledgeable. Uh, eventually, the three of them after wandering together for a time, are invited into a hidden underground calm where a society of skilled calmless, so, so other people who have kind of left their comms uh, at the start of this fifth season, have come together to try and survive uh, the fifth season. And it's very, it's kind of unheard of for there to be this underground society. They, they found, essentially, a, an ancient civilization that had made a world here underground and it had been abandoned at some point and they found it and now they're trying to, to live there. All right, so that's Essen's story. Uh, Demea is a young girl whose family has called a guardian to take her away after she showed signs of being an orogeny. Uh, Shafa, the guardian, seems nice and welcoming to Demea, and he's much nicer to her than her family was or anyone in the community was. They treat her like an animal after her powers are displayed, but Shafa treats her very warmly and nicely, um, and, and they form a bond as they're traveling to the fulcrum, and he tell, but while they're traveling, he tells her his job and the job of all guardians is to help orogenies control their powers, even when they're in great pain or distress. Because if they can't control their powers, they are a threat to everyone because they can they can trigger earthquakes. Um, and he proceeds to break the bones in her hand to see if she will lash out with her powers. Uh, and she doesn't. She keeps her powers under control, even under this physical abuse that she's suffering. And he reveals that he was going to kill her if she had failed the test. But because she passed, she'll be taken to be trained. At the fulcrum, there are some of the expected issues of bullying and social politics in a magical superpowered boarding house. Um, <laughs> but uh, Demea is clearly one of the most uh, gifted students in her grade. A young girl sneaks into the school and she's trying to find something. And she like she knows there's something hidden at the school that she needs to find. She can't even really fully explain what it is, but she knows she needs to find it. Demea helps this girl sneak into a chamber in the fulcrum. Demea has done lots of exploring and sneaking around at this point. They get caught by the guardians and they get separated. And the guardian with Demea seems to become possessed and threatens her uh, when Shafa comes in and kills that guardian. He then tells Demea that she must take her first ring test now. So the Orogenies take tests to earn rings uh, that represent their power level and also their level of control. And the more rings you have, the better you are. Uh, and this is going to be Demea's only chance to save herself because she's broken the rules of the fulcrum. But if she can earn a ring sooner than anyone would expect her to and demonstrate that she can be trained and that she has a level of power and control that the guardians are looking for, they would let her live. So she doesn't get any time to train or even be told what the te test is going to be, but she goes and she passes the test and gets her first ring and she's allowed to choose a new name for herself. 
which is part of this process. All right, so now we get to Cyanite. Cyanite is, um, I wrote down five ring, but now I'm thinking she was only a four ring orogeny. Um, but uh, she is trained enough that she gets sent out to do things for the Fulcrum, for, for the Guardians, and she is assigned to go on a mission with Alabaster to travel to a coastal calm and help them remove a coral buildup that is preventing them from getting proper trade in and out of their bay. But her real mission is to conceive a child with Alabaster. Like this is very explicitly made known to both of them. There's no romance about it. Uh, but Alabaster is a 10 ring orogeny. One of the most powerful person anyone has ever known. And the guardians want progeny from him they want they want his children to be able to train and mm-hmm. alastair is completely disinterested in sex uh with cyanite like this there's there's no attraction but they've both been ordered to do this uh so uh the guardians insist that he tried to have as many children basically with as many powerful female erogenies as he can so alabaster is strange he and uh, cyanite don't get along uh but they tried to carry on with both missions that they've been assigned alabaster takes her to a node which is um a, a point where um trained orogenies get sent to kind of quell earthquakes in out of the way places. So around cities, there's lots of orogenies who are are, um, stopping earthquakes from happening. This world seems to have a a real tectonic issue. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) More more than average number of earthquakes. Uh, And so out in nodes, they still need orogenies that that can help control this. Alabaster shows One side note makes sense. It's like Pangea. It's one supercontinent, right? Right, So it's kind of in the process of splitting, we're told in the... um... Prologue, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alabaster shows her the truth, though. Uh, in this node, uh, young orogenies with lots of power but too little control have been lobotomized, and they're kept alive because they will instinctually uh, quell earthquakes around them to keep themselves safe. And this lobotomized child is one of Alabaster's uh, children, and not just that level of abuse. It's implied that there's other abuse that's just horrifying that happens to, uh, mm-hmm. to this lobotomized child. Uh, Cyanite is completely sickened by this, uh, but Alabaster says this is all part of the system that they belong to and that she is upholding by going on these missions. Uh, they get to the coastal calm, and Cyanite uses her powers to remove the coral, but realizes there's something in the bay that shouldn't be there. When she touches it with her powers, a giant obelisk rises from the bay and into the sky. These obelisks are just floating in the sky uh, around this world. Uh, a guardian is sent to go kill Cyanite and Alabaster because guardians seem to fear Orogenes interacting with obelisks. Uh, but just as Cyanite is about to die, she reaches out to the obelisk and then she passes out. And when she wakes up, Cyanite discovers that a stone eater I'm going to say has phased her and Alabaster to safety. It's kind of like Kitty Pride in the X-Men. Uh, the Stone Eaters can move through stone and they, a Stone Eater has come and taken her and Alabaster to safety while the obelisk that was in the sky basically destroyed the calm and caused a volcano to emerge. Like this is just uh, like for that area, an apocalyptic level of destruction has happened uh, where, where, where they just were, but Cyanite and Alabaster are safe. The Stone Eater leaves Alabaster and Cyanite on an island where there's actually a thriving community. And this is unlike any Cyanite has ever seen before. She didn't know any, she didn't even know there could be a community on an island. Um, here, Orogenes are leaders and they keep the island safe. Uh, the leader of this island, Calm, is Inan. Uh, Alabaster is gay, while Inan is bisexual and Cyanite is straight. And those, uh, these three enter into a polyamorous relationship and raise Cyanite and Alabaster's son. So Cyanite is pregnant at this point uh and we kind of jump ahead in this timeline and uh this polyamorous family ha- is raising a two-year-old i, I want to say it was around two-year-old uh as, you know in uh, 
at this point. Um, but they know the fulcrum and the guardians are still looking for them. Uh, and eventually they see ships that are just full of guardians coming to attack the island after a battle where Alabaster and Cyanite use their powers impressively, but they are still overwhelmed uh, and, and they're going to, to lose. A stone eater appears and phases Alabaster away despite his protest. Anon is killed in front of Cyanite. Uh, Shafa comes to take Cyanite's child, and with the implication that this child will be lobotomized, taken to a node station. Uh, and to prevent that from happening, Cyanite smothers her child to prevent uh, the, the Guardians from getting uh, getting him, and she lashes out with her powers in a wild, uncontrollable way that basically destroys everything on this island. And then the finale. Uh, Essen is in the underground comm, where she's uh, she was taken with... Um, with Hoa, uh, uh, and uh, she's told that someone is looking for her, and she goes, and it is Alabaster who has been transformed during his enforced time living with the Stone Eaters. He's like becoming stone-like himself, and we discover that Demea, Cyanite, and Usen uh, are all the same woman. We've been seeing different chapters of her tragic life, uh, and the way the story is told, like you, did, everything clicks and it makes sense. And there's moments where it kind of like hints, like okay, I could see some connections here. But this is where it becomes very explicit that these were all, uh, you know, her childhood, her uh, kind of early adulthood, and now as a middle-aged uh, woman here at the end and usen realizes that alabaster caused a massive earthquake that started this fifth season and he says this is all part of his plan to end all fifth seasons and then he asks her have you ever heard of something called the moon and that's how the book ends <laughs> the end <laughs> <laughs> so not quite sure where we're going with the uh the moon. like there was an interesting moment uh earlier on in the book where um someone says something about the stars and i think it's in essen's storyline she says like i've heard of people who like study the stars but that's like quack non-science because all that matters is the earth because like her powers have made her so focused and everyone focused on the earth the earthquakes that are constant uh mm. the people with, with earth-based powers they don't even really think about the heavens the stars you know a, a moon uh and so I, I don't know where it's going in the next book but it's an interesting that they kind of planted the seed uh as to why you would even ask a question about like do you know what a moon is <laughs> So, Charlie, what did you think as someone who you, you said you, you, you haven't done as much fantasy in the last uh, little while in your life? What did you think of this text? Yeah, I thought probably the first thing I would warn readers, it's really heavy. Uh, the way that Jemison treats topics, as you say, it's clearly very informed um, by uh, realism. But I feel like you probably want to know that going in. Yeah, there's um, as references we said in the to... summary, um, it's pretty intense. No, no sugarcoating when it comes to, especially the abuse of children. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually very interested. If you um, had like a strong internal emotional reaction, like the author, I am uh, single and childless. I know you're a father though, and so that, yeah, just thinking. Wow, I can see if you were a parent, maybe need to just like set that and be like, okay, <laughs> deep breath. So that's kind of my first takeaway is that this is a very intense um, novel. Yeah, she acknowledges sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, there's environmental. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, there's references to cannibalism uh, in during fifth seasons in the in the past, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in history. Um, and it's I think Jemison rides a really interesting line where there is no doubt what she is talking about. But for a lot of it, it is implicit, not explicit. 
Does that make sense? Yes, it does, because that actually um, is a good transition to the next thing that really stood out to me and to me is what makes this feel much more literary rather than just like a pulp novel, as we were talking about with Hugo. Uh, what was his last name? Uh, Greenback. Uh, Green. I think. Uh, let me, let me <laughs> double can, check. It's been a while since I took my sci-fi history. It's Hugo. Ah, uh, hold on. <laughs> oh, I still remember where I was sitting when I heard about that term scientific uh, science fiction uh, in in college. I was taking a, a, a sci-fi genre uh, literature course. That's very it. nice. Uh, <laughs> Sorry to get us off track. Here. No, I'm. Uh, let's see. Where is it? Uh, Gernsback. Sorry, not Greenback. Gernsback. <laughs> very nice. Um, yeah, so something that makes the fifth season feel more literary to me is an extremely innovative use of narrative uh, point of view. Mm -hmm. So at first I would say I found the use of second person somewhat distancing, but I think as you go and you start to see the parallels between the different uh, chapters, you know, kind of like when you first watch Memento, right? I think, it's a decent analogy. When you first watch Memento, if you know nothing about Chris Nolan or this movie, you might just be confused. <laughs> so I think I was confused. Picked up first couple chapters, like what? <laughs> so I would say give it, give it, you know, just a, a few chapters. I think it does become clearer, you know, that she's dipping in and out of using second person and third person in pretty innovative ways. But it did feel a kind of consciously experimental in a way that I don't always find with other fantasy novels, which to me are very much uh, more baked into certain tropes inspired by, I assume, you know, Tolkien and all these kind of old masters of that genre. What did you think of the voice? Did that? Um, I think out? it's um, really interesting I, where you feel it most is um, in the story after um uh, Essen has it is so traumatized that she's kind of um, separating herself from what's yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. There's her. definitely some depersonalization going right. on. Yeah, where it says a lot of like, "You do this, you do that," mm -hmm. uh, and um, and then there's a very different way that it gets presented when we're talking about Demaya's story as a as a child. Um, yes. Or or cyanide when she's. Um, yeah, I, I she's discovering more and more about the world around her, but she also there's more uh, you know confidence, uh, right? You know, it's kind of the um, I think it's interesting with these the, with these characters or, or or the same character in these different phases of life. Uh, Sina at the beginning of the quest is very sure of her place in the world and what the world is um, around her, and by the time uh, we get to Essen, yes, she's completely traumatized by the death of her son but also like you start to think back through everything that she's been through in her life like she is she, she's not on board with the world <laughs> you know she's not on board with the way things are uh and and uh even going in and having the small family in and out of the way rural place is kind of a you know an escape from the world whereas uh essence story is like she's at the or, or sorry cyanide story is at the center of the world and you know at the, at the fulcrum mm -hmm. <laughs> you yes, know and, yes. and, and, and hence, hence the name <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yes um and so i i think um I, like i haven't read game of thrones i i know game of thrones deals with a lot of like sexual abuse rape um all these issues um from my uh, again uh, secondhand knowledge of it it gets dealt with in a way that's more explicit than what 
you get in this one. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read and watched um, some of both, especially that first mm-hmm. uh, work. And I would say that it felt very um, innovative at the time. It didn't feel like anything I had read because I think he, he did um, make fantasy feel less sort of ye old in times, right? And feel mm-hmm. very um, uh, present, modern, right? Like you could be watching it, which is, I think, why it, it worked well as the basis for a. Mm-hmm. A film but yes it's uh can feel almost exploitative right uh, i think they yes. call it you know like trauma porn or something just in the yeah. sense that it is um you know using bad things happening to characters especially oppressed characters to heighten you know certain like drama and yes it's this distinction between like the author and narrator and reader and all that that you can tell that the narrator throughout this work i think is on the side of the oppressed people no matter mm-hmm. like what what is happening because yes yeah, she throughout the vast majority of this although she's very powerful those um kind of psychological slash physical powers i read somewhere that it's a part of their they're human noid human basically but on different planets and um it's like a part of their brainstem that we on this earth don't have access to. So um, that's the, the like if you, if you, the, the midichlorian explanation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's just interesting that this orogeny rather than a character I actually kept thinking of, um, which might show my own priors here in terms of, you know, my cultural <laughs> uh, experience would be, it remind me a lot of how Elsa's powers are not considered good (laughs) so if you've watched the sequel especially there's some backstory but in the first movie i think most people have seen it um elsa as a character is constantly being told to hold it in so it seems like this orogeny is an even more powerful version of that where if they become emotionally upset they start yeah freezing things and Mm -hmm. blowing up blowing up tectonic plates and whatnot so how do you think that was handled, the the power of orogeny? Um, it was like writing the line between something uh, like in, in Name of the Wind, where like you get a science to the magic and like here's the explanation of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's in between that and the hand wavy kind of magic where it's like, OK, well, I said <laughs> a word and now this this is going on where like she does give some explanation like it requires heat for the orogeny to work. And so they're they're drawing heat from the earth itself and from living create like you one way that living one reason why orogenies are so dangerous is if they do a big act of magic, they can take all the body heat from any living person around them and kill them besides whatever violence might be enacted, you know, by 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 the earthquake itself. So there's mm-hmm. um, some explanation of you know the the energy transferal that's that's necessary for this beyond just hand waviness but it also doesn't go into like we're going to sit down in a classroom and uh lay out uh you know the mathematical formula of uh this energy transference yeah she has a somewhat mm, almost blunt style of writing mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think you have to read it to see what i mean by that but that it's um Mm, the narrative voice wants to be very close realism basically realism but in a, an alternate world which i thought was an interest it honestly was quite different from anything i've read in this genre but again um fantasy i have certain um assumptions but yeah mm-hmm. it, it felt um 
maybe similar to some of the um, Latin American magical realism authors where it's like, yep, just just go with this. This is yeah. real. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the world. Uh, yep, yep. And you're in it now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. That's a, that's a great way to summarize. Yes, you're along for the ride mm-hmm. from page one. <laughs> yeah, and I think she does a really good job of giving it just enough of the world and understanding like the the social structure, the 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 different groups that may have different uh, mm-hmm. you know, competing motivations that, you know, because c- we are definitely heading into like conspiratorial realm- realms, at, particularly with uh, Sinite and Alabaster, where Alabaster saying, like, this is the way the system really works. Like you, you were told this is what node is, but this is what nodes really are. Um, and that is right there summarizes what I often struggle with in fantasy. This idea that there's like weird like words and terms and I have to mm-hmm. kind of like just go with it. I think if you're not steeped in that genre, it can be a little challenging. So it was challenging for me at first. I will grant that, you know, these kind of odd words and powers is like, oh boy, am I gonna like, you know, have to keep a glossary at hand. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's not too over the top. I think it's grounded yeah. in enough real human emotion and um believability that then it uh grew on me that way. Yeah, like she she definitely uses real swear words, uh, <laughs> swear words that we know. Um, but then she invented the slurs for groups of people. Uh, that, oh, like that a, get used. is it Roga or Roja? R- yeah, or Raga. Uh, you know, I think it's R O G A. If I'm, <laughs> you know, that yes, that's yes. what uh, the the and, slur and for. Orogenies, yeah. Orogenies, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they call people who can't use uh, their power stills. Um, but they're uh, like muggles, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the Roga is like, a, I mean, it's kind of like the mudblood, right? You know, it's a. It's, yes, it's yes. A, uh, and a really... she herself, that's actually a good um, transition because, of course, quote unquote racial purity, which I really think is that theme with um, Harry Potter. Uh, seems to be a theme she's exploring because uh, Demaya slash Cyanite slash Essun is uh, what we would consider. I, I read up, uh, we could link to it, but yeah, she goes into how they conceive of race and it has to do with where they live on this Pangea like mm-hmm. continent. So how they uh, socially construct quote unquote race. She is a mid latter. So a mid latter is somewhat, um, in the middle um, appearance wise of some of the other groups so the orogeny power is randomly distributed among groups and I liked that actually I liked that um, you know there's these different prejudices that felt believable and like kind of as you said rural areas and they're quite different from like the uh, remind me of Panem or something right in Hunger Games where there's like one major megapolis um, how do you say it uh, the uh, major Metropolis? city. The... No, 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 no. The city, the city in. Um... Oh, I am. Uh, <laughs> Why am the, I? Um... The first district. Like, what is it called, though? I can't think that. Do they just call yeah, it the yeah. capital? Sorry, that, again, cut that out. Yeah. The, but in this world, uh, mm-hmm. th something. Th. Oh, oh, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'd have to. <laughs> Eumenes, uh, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Eumenes, yeah. Um, so Sorry, yes, that right we were there. For Hunger Games. <laughs> but yes, as you can see, um, the. Um, yeah, the you can kind of picture her as a as an individual of these different intersecting identities, which I have mm-hmm. no doubt she like would be, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality be into that sort of uh, reading. 
Yeah. And in that, it made me think a little bit about um, X-Men. Again, like we're both refer, you know, referencing the stuff that, that we know, you know, where there's like the, the prejudice against mutants. But then, uh, you know, they get treated as an allegory. But then within the X-Men, it's it's one of the more, uh, you know, eventually became one of the most diverse like uh, comic book superhero teams because mm, they wanted yes, to, yes. to be able to play with that kind of you know, what kind of prejudices are we representing in terms of, you know, race, gender, uh, you know, sexuality, identity, like all these, all these different. Oh yeah. Uh, the treatment of, of sexuality felt very different from fantasy, which I feel like has usually very traditionalist sexual politics <clears throat> because it seems to have come from mm, like waspy type um, mores. And as you say, you know, back in the 1920s, um, it seems like a bit of the conventions were baked in, you know, maybe a century plus ago, in my opinion, mm-hmm. reading other uh, fantasy sometimes as a woman, sometimes I feel like the inner world of women. And in... so, yes, this, this would probably be my strongest um, endorsement of this book. This feels like a believable story about a woman. And we just get so few first person uh, or, you know, close second and third in this case, narratives where a woman is like on screen. So I'm just so thrilled to see something where a woman is actually the point of view character for the majority of a work. I know that sounds like, oh, yeah, but no, if you look at the numbers in Hollywood and publishing, it's still such a rarity. So I, I thought that was executed well, that this is a very flawed complex human who happens to be female and i appreciated that <laughs> and i just want to say like as, as a white male i thoroughly enjoyed it <laughs> and awesome. i had no issue being able to you, consume it everyone you, you don't you don't feel the need to join a um uh, a sad puppy brigade yes a sad puppy brigade to say but where are the stories about my people well uh rothfuss will come through we'll have and we'll have more yeah. Quality. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's an interesting framing, right? You can see it as a very zero sum or positive something. Mm-hmm. And I think these movements at their best could be positive sum. And I can read a great set of stories by an Asian American author and an African American and a white woman like Mary Robinette Koa, like myself. And I mm-hmm. just, I don't see it as being um, something that is taking down. Um, white male fantasy sci-fi authors there are a lot of them i have read and consumed their works i can go see a film with um you know brad pitt or matt damon looking baleful in space pretty much any year right so i see no evidence that these movements to increase diversity and representativeness have to be negative some that framing feels very flawed to me so i appreciate that she um yeah yeah really um stuck to her guns in terms of her her internal world, but of course also how she's dealing with it out in our world. <laughs> and um, I, I think I, I'm not going to defend like the, the history of, of the fan, early fantasy and, and sci-fi as, you know, being super progressive and absent of racism. Like H.P. Lovecraft r- really is a hugely influential and important figure. Also super racist, like hard to describe how racist he was yeah, um, well, as an author. But... Look at some of his actual uh, writings about <laughs> Jewish folks, black people, women. I was I was kind of shocked. You know, you think it's kind yeah. of oh, you know, how how bad can it be? It's it's pretty bad even by his yeah. era. So exactly. There you go. Yeah. Like, like there's there's the oh well you know not everyone you know the, the, there were still a lot of issues but no he was yeah. he was pretty far. Um, but his, yeah. his mythology, the Cthulhu, and and the way he wrote about um the the blend of fantasy and horror and um it, it's it's still very 
interwoven to modern fantasy um yes. and everything and so, and so there, there there's that of it but also like there's a lot of sci-fi that's pretty progressive guy <laughs> like i don't know how to tell you about star trek especially think... and that's actually a good uh transition um yeah. because i think the first golden age of female sci-fi authors was in the 70s i actually think mm-hmm. the whole said puppies uh movement is representative of a backlash that began um because there was starting to be some insecurities um that actually far predate them as as mm-hmm. writers and authors so i think sometimes as a woman, I notice in various art forms, you can see this in film, right? Early Hollywood actually had a number of great, prolific, artistically respected women directors. It wasn't really until the middle of the 20th century that it became so overwhelmingly dominated by white men. Um, I think a similar thing went on with this genre, and I myself may have been more interested in it if I had been handed more <laughs> books. But you think about what we read as children in middle school, you know, that kind of age group. And there's certainly a lot of women authors, but it's dominated by more like coming of age, a kind of domestic type fiction, your little Mm -hmm. women, your Anna Green Gables. I liked those books, but it's certainly in one kind of genre. It's not the man going out to space, having adventures. When you read those, you just don't see yourself. So I think that, you know, as educators are thinking, you know, how to define the canon, which is usually literary fiction, but the canon of sci-fi fantasy, it might be interesting to you know, see some that not even were you have to pluck from some shelf and no one's heard of them. It's like, oh, well, great. You're obscure and you're being revived. No, that were actually like bestsellers and influential yeah. and successful. So I think sometimes history is written not only by the winners, but people who want to have a certain yeah, but by so, agendas. To me, that's the point of like mm, advocating for recognizing these uh, works with awards is not as some kind of participation like, oh, well, you know, everyone needs a trophy. No, like to make sure that the uh, best works are getting recognition they deserve. So I think, you know, uh, yeah, it certainly, yeah, deserves the acclaim but um yeah that uh yeah probably worth noting that even she herself did not realize that octavia butler was a black woman and i just don't think anyone is gonna like uh dispute the quality of butler's writing right does that yeah yeah. um and it's uh, just talking about that idea of like what what you read and when you read it, like if if people in the who who want to align themselves with something like the sad puppy movement had read more texts that gave them empathy for other people's points of view and you know car- characters that just look at themselves, it might, might help break, break through some of that. Uh, written beautifully on Twitter of all places. Very few good things come of Twitter, but Shannon Hale has amazing uh, Twitter uh, threads on how she writes. Um, books with uh, a fantasy element for sure for younger readers with all female protagonists and is hugely a a supporter of librarians and teachers assigning them to boys. So she goes all over the country. Everyone were reading this. Yes. Yes. Which it's never bad an eye at 
when the teacher says everyone we're reading this and it's a book by a white male author about a white male protagonist like that's indeed that, yeah that's nothing this, but if this you assign takes me back to high school my own um trauma i had a um pretty creepy older um american literature professor and i have validated this with every woman in my grades like oh yeah he was super creepy touchy you know as, as me too came out he was a, a popular um target of us reevaluating our experiences so this was horrifying literary fiction thank you joe i appreciate the support but yeah just thinking about how the canon of uh i suppose the topic of the class was um 20th century american literature and i love these authors i still i I managed to separate you know the the teacher from the book from the work and so yeah even though they're like problematic alcoholics of the jazz age i love them i love scott fitzgerald <laughs> i love him you're talking anyway. about scott and hemingway <laughs> yes you knew you saw it was coming you're like oh <laughs> yep but it's just odd to me that their contemporaries who were considered just as talented and even had you know a certain amount of acclaim and you know, money writing such as take Dorothy Parker. We didn't read any Dorothy Parker in that class. I'm like, why not? She's great. She doesn't need a like a consolation prize. She's in the same you know kind of um, super milieu and world. So yeah, I, I, I'm thinking that um, yes, it can go both ways. That we need younger women to see, hey, like you can write too. You can help um, define a narrative. Uh, you're not consigned to one of my favorite phrases uh the italian author elena ferrante talks about not in a vanity fair interview talks about not wanting to be confined to a literary gynecaeum right so like that it's just this like you are in women's fiction so i would never (laughs) classify the fifth season as like a a mid-market women's book club type book although it has a protagonist as a woman written by a woman so i think she managed to somewhat break apart some of the genre limitations by doing her own um very experimental uh narrative so props to her on that she will not be a Contained, but all the authors I just mentioned, um, it may be an issue of again this intersectionality. When and where and how white women authors are taught very well could be um, that um, uh, being an African American writer that she has that extra um, hurdle from yeah. I mean the sad puppies. I don't know that they were trying to keep white women out as much as they were um, mm. authors of color, to be quite frank. So that seems to be a big yeah. issue. I, I only know the, of the ex- movement's existence and the controversy. I don't know really what their whole <laughs> deal is. <laughs> yeah. But yes, what's interesting to see is that um, yeah, it might have even had a backlash effect, in my opinion. Mm. It might have been that there might have been you know, some you know, kind of internal mm, complaints and people thinking, oh, it's too woke or whatever but um i think it got more allies against them because they were so terrible (laughs) so uh yes i mean do you think that this is uh do you because this now came out um Uh, yeah six six, five four years ago do you think this is indicative of certain trends within the genre yeah definitely the broadening of of voices where there Mm -hmm. is uh, an effort. I th- I think there exists an effort from readers to try and find you know more diverse authors to read, uh, and I think from publishers uh, to recognize this. Um, and it is a story that I think you you identified some of the literary things that it does with uh, point of view and and uh, you know the, the narrator uh, narrator's voice that 
changes depending on what which time period of the character we're looking at and mm-hmm. that and i think it's an interesting text in that it has all that thematic heft it has a really good f- fantasy uh world building and it also has this twist and it's actually bringing all those pieces together where like at the where you're like oh these are all the same person well that where that was not made clear <laughs> you know that was that Did was deliberately withheld any sense um, of foreshadowing were you like shocked what how I think was there was the, the one that kind of stood out to me is that uh, we'd seen the little girl get her hand broken. And then we mm-hmm. saw um, uh, Cyanite have uh, talk about having pain in her hand. And I thought, oh, Guardians must do that to all girls. Ah. <laughs> you know, or, or all. <laughs> but I didn't know if it was, if we were supposed to get it as Guardians. This is a common test that they break the hands of Orogenes. Oh, yeah. Or, but then at the end, you're like, oh, no, it was it was her hand, <laughs> you know, yes, had yes. like the, the phantom pain uh, still going on because of we we saw when it was broken. So, I, I you know, there was that foreshadowing. But I think she brings in all those elements and they I think there have been books that have the twist that become just the twist. Right. You know, either a literary trick or a narrative trick where it's like, oh, now, OK, now now you have to go rethink everything. And there have been books that say I'm going to deal with this complex theme through allegory of fantasy, like that remove from our world into fantasy, which can be done mm. very well, but, but the story becomes just about that. Um, and, and then there are definitely fantasy novels that have really intense magic systems and world building. And you know, the author, <laughs> like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg and the author has like notebooks of notes as to how everything works. And I yes, think this, yes. this one finds a good balance of all of those. And it's one reason why the, tr- like, like the twist is really interesting, but it also, isn't why I like the book or why the book won the award. Right. You know, and I think, I think it's executed well. Uh, and you can see how, like, if you're suggesting to someone, you might want to hold out on that information. Um, and, and maybe not even imply that there is a twist ending. Uh, but it's not like six cents where like the whole thing is just about the twist. <laughs> I, how did I know Shyamalan would uh, come up here? Yes. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he has so become identified with uh, twist endings. It's, it's uh, hard to, Mm-hmm. Avoid it. And, uh, did you happen to see uh, the uh, newest film, Old? I have not. I've seen many memes about it. Ah, yes. Uh. <laughs> that, that's actually interesting. You know, the way we consume these, I think maybe a reason it felt literary to me is because it felt very self-contained. Mm-hmm. I had certainly heard about, uh, yes, this Hugo award-winning author, and I'd heard a lot of other podcasters recommend this book but in a way i think you're right that um people are keeping the story within the story which i think is more literary Uh, we'll see if it crosses into pop culture the way dune i have certainly not read dune it's what 10 million pages long (laughs) but um uh it getting the film treatment the hollywood treatment i think that is something that makes um works of sci-fi or fantasy really become more mainstream yeah, they, certainly. I think Game, Game of Thrones with its HBO series. Uh, so I think you know, this will be a great opportunity for a lot of creators, for actors, you know, really innovative director to play around. I mean, yeah, just think of, you know, I don't know, anyone from Michael Bay uh, to the most, you know, uh, Terrence Malick or something. You would have such a different experience in this film depending on the directorial choices of how you show these. Um, to me, it was such a like obvious callback to um, 2001. A space odyssey. You can't monopolize a mysterious obelisk without um, feeling uh, yes. that work. And it made me think of how now, as we feel our own world in a somewhat post apocalyptic scenario, I kept having to go back and be like, wait, is this really 2015? Because this feels very 
2020, 2021, maybe. <laughs> um, the you may recall in Utah, where we live and elsewhere, uh, last fall, winter, Mysterious Ogla started appearing in our world. And to me, it feels like this weird, like, mm, it's hard for me to put a finger on, like, why that just feels right, but it feels right to me. As this world that we know, um, I think we can all acknowledge we're having our own sort of climate tectonic change where, um, oh, and now I know what it was. I was like, this feels like uh, uncanny was the lockdown, right? How she describes mm -hmm. lockdown early in the work and throughout, uh, we've all now lived through. <laughs> so I think that um, there being this sense of the, um, the uncanny, the sublime is a way that our brains deal with these forces that we can't control or in the case of origins, um, imperfectly control. What do you think of that? This theme of, yeah, apocalypse and just like end of the world. I mean, that's uh, talking about generic tropes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes. So did it work for you in, in this book? Uh, I yes. Know, for me, I, I, I'm feeling in a post-apocalyptic mood, I'll admit. So yeah, I think that I think the timing of reading this now uh, could could work or could also feel too mm -hmm. heavy. And <laughs> it's, it's up to you as a reader, I suppose. <laughs> I, I think one thing that made it still feel a little distanced, I think is, um, well, like it, it's said, like everyone's prepared for a fifth season because they know they happen. So like no one's caught off guard. Right. Oh, with yes. This. It uh, is but, quite different from more realistic apocalypse novels in that way where, uh, yeah, once upon a time, and then, right, that trope yeah. of like everything changes. Well, it's like everything changes again is what the um, prologue's narrator says. And the main storyline where we're dealing with the fifth season is uh, Essen, and she's dealing with a trauma that's so different than the world falling. Like, not mm, like she has the micro scale apocalypse of her child having been killed by her husband and her husband running off with another child that she now has to worry is going to be killed which um, i don't so know about you i'm not a parent but to me actually felt even more visceral than you know this oh, earth yeah, shattered, like, right mm, mm. <laughs> yeah that, that was one of the like like the uh the idea of like an earthquake causing the climate to change because it's kicking up so much <laughs> like that's you know uh, whatever that's utah uh, <laughs> but but yeah the the descriptions of her trauma like i, I was listening it's to it as an audio book. i had to pause and like go do a palate cleansing podcast yeah at, yeah at, at some parts where it's like well too much i um, i i said yeah I, I set it down as well um that very first revelation we're just so so bleak and yeah i mm -hmm. uh i don't know if that's really just like a lot of fantasy if that's really reflective of our world heightened of course domestic violence is is a very real issue right it's uh something that maybe we want to not think about yes because of its yeah it's real um visceral impact yeah and um one, one thing that i was thinking about and how she established like the idea of of prejudice and hatred and uh and how a, like a father could enact that violence upon his own child and we, we mm -hmm. don't meet the father at all like the, this whole book she's chasing and and we don't know anything but like just yeah. even even that thought process how does it happen I, one thing that i thought was interesting that was done is this idea of uh like the slur that dehumanizes the um the erogenies away from uh, the, the humans, even though like they're, they're the same. All right. And, and we were, we're actually given a different species with the rock eaters where it's like, okay, that's not human. What the, <laughs> you know, the, the rock eaters are so, so different. Um, and 
the at one point alabaster in teaching um her about the, the their their world he he talks about how like oh no like similar changes like from era to era and like prejudice get introduced and things get removed uh to, yes. to make one group look good and one group look bad and she's like well you can't you can't do that. And he like, he quotes something. And she's like, that's not in the stone lore. He's like, that's from tablet five. And she's like, there's only three tablets of stone lore. He's like, there's not, <laughs> you know? And, and one thing that he did, it does is like, there's this story about why humans hate erogenies, um, about an erogeny going in and like threatening an entire city and trying to kill the, the emperor and the erogeny had this much power that they literally could have carried that out. But the emperor is able to, um, if I'm remembering right, the emperor does defeat the Orogeny and it's, it's a moment of heroism for humanity and not for the, the Orogenies. And he's like, why did the Orogeny want to do that? And she's like, what? Like, that's not in the story. No one knows. And then he like walks through the real history that uh, because of the fifth season, there was no food growing. Uh, that, like this was a time of a, of a fifth season. There was no food growing. Uh, plants had died. Animals had died. And the humans turned to cannibalism. And this is where like the, the slurs for Orogenies started to mm. be introduced to make them other to dehumanize them to a point that you could uh you know enact that kind of violence on them and it made me think about there's um a documentary called killing us softly about women in advertising and the portrayal of women and uh the sexualization but also the objectification and not just like the idea of objectifying them in uh like sexualizing their bodies but like literally in advertising making women into objects like all the time like that she gives uh, like this montage of examples of mm -hmm. you know uh women as models that have become like the objects that are being sold um and she talks about that the idea of objectification of moving someone from a human to an object is part of the mental process of being able to commit violence because it's really hard to enact sexual violence or physical violence on someone that you see as another human uh, but you, you need to be able to dehumanize them to the point that you can enact that kind of violence. And she says, this advertising creates a, a, a culture around us that, that for some people that consume so much of this, women do become objectified to the point of dehumanization. And that's why sexual violence can have the statistics that it has that are so horrifying, uh, when, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just what is even reported, much less what is not reported in terms of sexual violence against women. Like, how does yeah. that even happen? Um, and it's this process of dehumanization. And that's why slurs and language that make people into others and media that make groups into others can have those real world impacts. This, this through all this allegory kind of explores all those like really hard to process issues uh, in a way that um, I, I thought Jemison really hit the nail on the head in several parts um, without like beating the reader over the head with it. It was just like, you know, a little paragraph. Yeah, I don't uh, think the tone the is background. preachy. Mm -hmm. I wondered exactly. if yes, it would, I frankly wondered if it would be, I was like, well, there's all this controversy. Is this going to be a really preachy novel? No, not at all. I don't think I think, I think she handles um, that well. It does one of those. I love it when good sci-fi fantasy does this, where it allows um, enough distance that they they can tell a story that has application, but it doesn't feel that that level of preachiness. Now, sometimes sci-fi takes the allegory and beats you over the head with the allegory so much that it's unavoidable. Uh, and, and it does feel very, very preachy. <laughs> um, and I, I think she does a really good job. Yeah. Uh, w w with that part of it. Uh, anything else that you wanted to make sure we talked about with uh, the fifth season? Yeah. Uh, just one thing, again, maybe more about the author. Uh, I mean, from the character, uh, something I think worth keeping in mind. Uh, uh, Joe mentioned he's a 
white straight man. I'm a white straight woman. So keep that in mind. But um, this was a really touching um, quote from a profile I read of her. And I just wanted to um, read a bit of it and just say why um, really I resonated with it. You know, again, humanizing, you know, if you see someone with some similarities. So she, when interviewed, mentioned that, you know, she's very influenced by her family growing up, um, her um, own, I think, great-grandmother, either grandmother or great-grandmother's um, nickname was Madir. And uh, of course, that was um, a character with um, Demaya's grandmother. It was very minor, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. She used her real history in a, a small character in this book. So she says, like most Black Americans descend from slaves, it, her generational story, basically stops she once wrote about this loss, but also the absence of all that a person builds upon it, the strange emptiness to life without myths. And honestly, this makes me um, choke up. She had considered pursuing genealogy, the search for traces of myself in old sale documents, that is slave sales, and scan images on microfiche. She decided that she had no interest in what the records might say. They'll tell me where I came from, but not what I really want to know where I'm going. To figure that out, I make shit up. So I just found that quote really, really touching. I myself have done a lot of genealogy work. Um, I had uh, no real contact with my birth father. Genealogy was a big thing uh, in our shared cultural background, you and I, Joe. Mm -hmm. And that just really, really struck me. I was like, wow. I, to me, I felt seen to this idea of it can be really difficult. Um, when you are told, of course, in her case, you know, culturally, very explicitly, you know, your your story, your history, that's, you know, second class, that might not matter. So I thought that was a really um, interesting, empowering way for her as just a person to decide. I think, you know, that's that's the creative impulse right there to decide, you know, that she is going to um, kind of honor this um, complex and often traumatic, I have no doubt that much of the trauma in the work is informed by yes her her like um unique um experiences as the descendant of african-american slaves um but yes me being a very bourgeois white woman i still i still really resonated with that the idea that you know maybe there's also value to starting de novo starting fresh so yes that that was the last thing i wanted to say is that i i really thought that was uh powerful frankly yeah, and I, I think um, I I knew the name Jemison. I knew the title of this book. I mm -hmm. hadn't read much about her, and I hadn't read this book. And um, I understand the buzz. <laughs> I just want to say, and it <laughs> makes me want to know more about her. Like she just comes off as a very impressive person. Yeah, she seems and very self possessed. Mm -hmm. Would be how I describe it. I find that very um, impressive, especially. Yes, when she has uh, faced "quote unquote" haters on the internet who apparently um, feel the need to yes tear her down if she makes a, a choice about first versus third person, apparently, and this kind of um, coincides with my my worst views of it. Yes, you know, not all, but some sci-fi fantasy readers can be you know pretty um, pretty negative, pretty cringy, even. So I th I think there's more momentum to making this a better um community right and it, it doesn't have yeah. to come at the expense of like making crazy 
worlds with you know magic and all this good stuff that I, i'm sure there's reasons that uh the super fans love it right you know they yeah. go to a comic con you can see people take sci-fi fantasy very seriously right in their fandom so as a podcast about yeah like characters fandoms i think that there's room for cthulhu and uh and, and all all the rest i Again, I don't see it as zero sum personally, but uh, yeah, I, I think that it may be that as it becomes more um, diverse, just like I was discovering female jazz age authors, I feel like I should shout out Zora Neale Hurston. There's, there's an example of a, a first class <laughs> writer that did not get the recognition in her time, that time, the jazz age that she really ought to have. Um, so yeah, it's a similar thing here, but happening in real time. That we are uh, actually, as a a society, giving some money. <laughs> yeah. Money is behind all of this, right? Awards <laughs> and movie deals. Yes, this idea that, oh, well, men really should just be given um, book and movie deals because reasons. I, I, I'm glad that um, there's a little more room at the table for everyone. And I will say... I, I really enjoyed this book and I fully anticipate that I'm going to go read the second and third. But oh. those trigger warnings that you mentioned, like this is heavy stuff. They I, are, I, they are uh, in, in I, making a recommendation. This is an adult book that deals yes. with adult themes that Correct. are traumatizing. And it, it does not do it in a way that trivializes that trauma at all. But do know that it is in there. Yes, I fully endorse that. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long